0: Mm-hmm. The reason why we are so positive, why the market, why not just me, is so positive on a Bajaj Finance and we will come to Chola Mandalam also mm-hmm. when we do that, is because these are the two companies along with HDFC which have stood the test of time. Right. There was a When there was crunch time, mm-hmm. how did these companies, uh, you know, actually deliver? Right. Were they able to collect? Were they able to grow? It was like, you know, you were passed through a stress test and you came through with flying colors and investors are going to reward you for that.
1: So welcome to the 16th episode of the Indian Market Story. Uh, you know, Thank you for joining us at the podcast once again and sharing your knowledge. We're here to talk about a really interesting subject, NBFCs. They're a critical, critical part of the overall financial ecosystem. But uh, why should investors care about NBFCs?
0: See, so investing is all about buying high growth stocks. And NBFCs are of the highest growth sectors within India. They have been growing at a rate faster than the banks as well and they are a super play on many of the larger sectors within the industry. Mm-hmm. Like if you're positive on automobiles, you're positive on transportation, mm-hmm. real estate, overall uh, you know, increase of uh, retail spending, mm-hmm. more mobile phones, all of these sectors, if you want to, a single sector to play on all of them, that is MBFC. So from that point of view, it is clearly a, a play on rising consumer spending, and rising consumer borrowing as well right? and the companies over there have done phenomenally well over the past few years, exceptional track records.
1: Right. So I mean there's no shortage of multi-baggers in the space, I mean Bajaj yes. Finance comes to mind. <laughs> but I want to maybe talk about uh, the overall context within which NDFCs sit for a second. So one thing that I recently came across is that India's overall household debt to GDP ratio um, is only about 35-36%, it sort of fluctuates between that range. Now, just for comparison, um, if you look at the U.S. or the U.K., they said U.S. is about 78 percent, U.K. is 85 percent, Japan is, you know, 65 percent, and even China is about 70 percent. So it seems like households have a long, long way to go in terms of their debt absorption appetite and the amount of liabilities they can take and absorb. Um, Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's one of the key growth factors for the NBFC industry, that India basically is underbanked. Mm -hmm. and the families don't have have as much debt on their books. I think largely because the generation before us, they avoided debt. Mm -hmm. Interest rates were also exceptionally high in India, so it didn't make sense to borrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now that interest rates have come down and we are seeing the spread of consumerism. By consumerism, I mean people want to buy flats, they want to buy mobile phones, they want to buy fancy cars, and they want it now. Right, They don't want to wait for it and save like the generation before us. Right. And that I think is the key trigger point for high growth within the NBFC sector.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if we look at India's overall liability picture, uh, I think there's about 83 lakh crores is the total liabilities of households. And uh, that breaks down to about a trillion dollars, which is about 30-40% of the overall GDP. 80% of that is still with banks and about 50 within million co-op banks and, you know, commercial banks. But housing finance companies and NBFCs are only about 10% of the overall by each. So do you anticipate that this uh, their share of the overall lending space will grow? Or is it that, you know, they will grow at the same rate as the banks? Or how do you anticipate their overall...
0: No, no, I think that NBFC growth rates will be significantly higher than bank growth rates. Within banks, I, you know that they have the private sector banks mm-hmm. and the PSU banks the private sector banks' are growth on credit is higher than the PSU. I think that NBFCs by and large will match the growth rates in credit in loan book of the private sector banks. And in a way, the NBFCs are like private sector banks. It's just that they're not banks. You know, right. the main difference between the NBFC of today and the bank is that the NBFC cannot take, cannot open current and savings account right. for uh, the average, uh, uh, you know, a saver. Or the average citizen. Other than that, operationally, in terms of regulation, in terms of operations, in terms of many other factors, reporting, they're pretty much the same.
1: I'm not, I I mean, I'm not necessarily sure. I completely agree, and I think we'll uh, we'll get to the figures in a second, because even the private banks which we spoke about in a previous podcast they have a net interest margin that's you know in the four to six seven percent range, even for the best of them. But some NBFCs are well above double digit net interest margins. So you know maybe this is a this is a nice segue to talk about some of the NBFCs. But it seems like the the business model for NBFCs is. Uh, a little different and maybe more robust than that of banks.
0: See the banks, the reason why the net interest margin is lower is because they have to put a large percentage of their deposits into reserve ratios which are with the government, with the RBI, which are under certain specified bonds which earn hardly any interest rate on them. The same thing is not true for the NBFC. NBFC can borrow 100, right, and lend 100. So there's no reserve requirement for them which is why their net interest margins are higher. Also, NBFCs by and large are prepared to take on far more risk Mm -hmm. than the banks. And the higher the risk you take, the more the net interest income or net interest margin that you can earn. Right. Uh, The key thing about NBFCs, and we'll talk a lot about in this podcast, is the collection efficiency.
1: Right. All right. So um, if I understand what you're saying, that NBFCs is basically a slightly riskier version of banks that have access to slightly riskier customers, but as a consequence get... You know, a little bit more of a margin on their on the funds they deploy, Absolutely. and there's maybe less risk mitigation requirements for NBFCs because they're not banks.
0: That's right. I think see the government, especially the RBI, their view is that uh, when it comes to banks, they need to be extra careful mm-hmm. because that's where retail savings, mm-hmm. retail deposits are involved, and any failure on the tap of the bank can have a major impact on the retail sentiment. Mm-hmm. And it has an impact on the economy as well. And generally, it is not viewed as very positively. Right. Whereas NBFC, the main borrowing comes from institutions, mm-hmm. the banks themselves mm-hmm. and various other uh, financial institutions. And then some of them also take deposits from the retail mm-hmm. uh, investors per se. So from that point of view, uh, RBI is less concerned if there's a failure of a NBFC. Mm-hmm. And let's put that in perspective ILFS was one of the largest NBFCs in India which uh, went bankrupt per se. 2018 if I'm not mistaken. That's right. But the impact of that was just not felt on any of the retail lenders or the retail depositors because they didn't have much of deposits from the retail side. It was all about institutions who had lent money to ILFS which got stuck per se. And now also I think a large part of it has got resolved. So that's a big difference between banks and NBFCs. And which is why I think there's a bit of a regulatory arbitrage between banks and NBFCs. NBFCs have it a little bit easier than Mm -hmm. the banks when it comes to reporting, when it comes to uh, the loan parameters, when it comes to the type of loans they can give. So there are many, uh, I would say, nuances over here. And
1: I think even as you described, capital allocation, if it was a bank, you have to hold some deposits with the RBI, you have to hold some GSACs and that's NBFC right. presumably there's lower absolutely. capital allocation absolutely. requirements.
0: It's up, it's up to the NBFC management to see how best they can manage their asset liability mismatch.
1: Right. So um, why don't we start talking about the NBFCs and you know, maybe some of the biggies in the space. And uh, I think one thing I know our viewers are going to ask about is bajaj Finance. and I know that's, that's a company that you love talking about as well.
0: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, Bajaj Finance has been one of the most spectacular wealth creators within the Indian capital markets, it has grown at a compound rate, the stock price at 50% uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. Yeah, And it's created many millionaires, uh, I would say. So the key thing of Bajaj Finance is, let's just go back a little bit into history. It was called Bajaj Auto Finance. Mm -hmm. It was a captive uh, NBFC of the Bajaj Auto Group. Mm -hmm. And they used to use that NBFC purely to give loans against their scooters and motorcycles Mm -hmm. so that they could sell more scooters and motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And uh, then somewhere around, I think in 2006, Mr. Rahul Bajaj decided that he had two sons and he had to kind of, you know, make sure that each one had their own responsibility. Mm -hmm. So the younger son, Sanjeev Bajaj, he got the insurance and the NBFC business and the elder son, Rajiv Bajaj, who was anyway managing Bajaj Auto, he continued with Bajaj Auto. Right. And can you imagine that since that point of time, Bajaj Finance has gone from strength to strength, strength to strength, and now its market capitalization is about 4.5 lakh crores versus 1.38 lakh crores of Bajaj Auto. Wow. So it's just an a a story. absolute story that uh, the subsidiary company of, uh, of the Bajaj, the smaller company, yeah. has grown a phenomenal pace the last 10-15 uh, years or so. And uh, it's been absolutely the bluest of blue chip stock that one could own within the NBFC space. Yeah. And all of that credit, not all, large part of the credit should go to its MD, mm-hmm. Mr. Rajiv Jain. Yeah. And it is his vision and his, uh, you know, thinking that the real growth in the retail lending would come in the consumer side. Right. So Bajaj, or, uh, Bajaj Finance is India's largest consumer finance company. So any gadget you want to buy, white right. goods, mobile phones, electronics, Bajaj Finance is there to give you that particular gadget on EMI.
1: That's really interesting because I think one thing we've spoken about in previous podcasts is that once India's sort of, once income levels have crossed subsistence levels, The question then becomes, where are people spending that extra money? They're spending that extra money on discretionary products. And the first discretionary product that people seem to be buying in India is mobile phones, white goods. And Bajaj Finance, by financing that, is really helping to capture that marginal increase in income.
0: Absolutely. And they started this in such a, I would say, interesting way, where they would have their own executive present at all of these electronic stores. And anytime a customer walked in over there and he was looking at buying, they would approach him and they look, you know, why don't you go for this product and this and this and we will just finance it for you. Wow. And the thing about it is that they were the earliest in the game. And if you go to any electronic shop, there's only one NBFC that the owner will deal with. And that was preferred partner was Bajaj Finance. And they had this edge for a decade or longer. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's a lot of competition. Everybody wants to emulate Bajaj Finance's business model, but they are miles ahead. And the main thing about Bajaj Finance is its collection efficiency. I mean, right. we have to, if we have to, we have to rate NBFCs. Investors have to rate NBFCs only on the success of the collection. Right. In India, it is very easy to increase the loan book. You can lend to anybody, Tom, Dick, and Harry, against any assets. Okay. Whether they are recoverable or not, that's the key thing. Right. And the companies which have stood the test of time, which have created the maximum wealth are the NBFCs which have got very, very efficient collection systems. Right. Because so, the big loss is of course for loan gets written off.
1: So let's uh, just to you know, maybe give some context to what we mean when we say collection efficiency. So. Ultimately, it's about you know recoverability of the loans, absolutely, and that comes down to gross or net non-performing assets. And you know one thing that we've discovered is Bajaj Finance that the two core figures that honestly still shock me. Um, their net NPAs are zero point six two percent, and they've stayed at that level or thereabouts that level for the last five years, which is unbelievable. And you know on the flip side. Their net interest margin is thirteen percent. Yeah, it's twelve point seven. You can't wrap your head around I just, it. I just I don't it's understand. I just I I just I can't compute it because you can't be borrowing at less than seven and a half eight percent because that's, that's
0: the seven point two six percent is the borrowing rate. Yeah, right.
1: Seven point two six. So
0: they're charging
1: twenty percent interest and they're not even you know all those loans are coming back. Only 062 percent of their loans are going bad. It's unbelievable.
0: No no, 062 percent is the net. NPA. Right. The gross NPA could be anywhere, anywhere from 1.5% to 2%. So one and a half two percent 2% of their loans are going bad. So let's just keep that in yeah. perspective. But uh, you know, that's the business model all about. So when you lend to the consumer, a lot of these are... Technically unsecure, also. I mean, mm-hmm. when you lend against a mobile phone, what security do you have? It'll depreciate set? very quickly. Exactly. So, and they are short term loans, one year, two years thereabout, because they are consumer loans largely. So, therefore, they're able to get that uh, you know high interest income, mm-hmm. high interest rate from their borrowers. Mm-hmm. And what Bajaj Finance has done is that they've gone across the board. They'll do gold loans, they'll do uh, housing loans, they will do working capital loans, loan against properties. You name the product they are there to lend lend to you against it okay and there's a lot of cross selling opportunity also because they just keep on gathering more and more customers running into millions and now they have developed a beautiful ecosystem around cross selling other financial products as well they are building a super app yeah uh, which can you know which merchants also can connect into it and generally create a very uh, easy way mm-hmm. for their customers to save mm-hmm. uh, borrow and invest
1: right, and I think that's reflected in their growth figures. Their overall uh, loan book or net advances is growing at I think 16.58 percent over the last five years, which is a very healthy growth rate. And uh, the market seems to be valuing their overall business very, very robustly. I think that yes. B is at 39 or thereabouts, which is um, so it's one of
0: the most expensive NBFC in the world, I would say. And look, when you stock over 13 uh, percent net interest margins. 23, 24% return on capital employed and super collection efficiency, I think you're going to be rewarded. And that's what has happened in the case of Bajaj Finance. But I must say that, uh, you know, the basis keep, keeps on increasing. Mm-hmm. So to grow at a, such a large base, going ahead may be a bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Competitive intensity also is coming mm-hmm. uh, very strong and heavy. Uh, I think Geo uh, Financial Services, when it gets launched, they will also look at consumer finance. And mm-hmm. a lot of the other companies are also looking at entering into the segments where Bajaj Finance is present. Mm-hmm. The Pyramals also have great plans to enter into consumer finance. Let's see how it plays out. Uh, there's enough room for everybody, but I think the base effect will come into play for Bajaj Finance, and you should expect that going forward the next five years will not be as fast in terms of growth rates as the last five years have been.
1: All right. So I think that's a really interesting summation of uh, you know the hero in the space, the, the absolute market The absolute leader.
0: hero. I mean, it's miles and miles ahead of any other NBFC, mm-hmm. and the only other NBFC which has uh, created this much success and shareholder wealth is HDFC, but it is now subsumed into HDFC Bank, and we would have spoken a lot about HDFC also if this podcast was done a few months ago, uh, when HDFC was a standalone entity, and HDFC for on its uh, has got uh, a super track record, mm-hmm. and again not only in terms of uh, giving uh, the loans and to the retail sector but also in terms of collection efficiency, right. they're amongst the best over there yeah. as well.
1: I think we'll come to HDFC and the impact it had on the housing finance space in Absolutely. a little bit, yeah. Yeah. but let's maybe talk about another diversified, you know, NBFC in the space, uh, l and Finance, which is much smaller in comparison to Bajaj Finance, but still quite a creditable company. So what's their history? I mean, LNT is, you know, an infrastructure company, how did they get into the NBFC business? See, you
0: know, India, we had this, uh, RBI still has this rule that they do not want uh, business houses to own banks. Yet business houses always required some kind of a vehicle to finance their customers. And that's where NBFCs came into play. So basically, we talked about Bajaj Finance. It was a captive finance company for the Bajaj group to lend to mm-hmm. its customers. Similarly with Larson and Tobro, where they felt that they uh, the their customers... Uh, be it the infrastructure uh, companies who they did projects for, mm-hmm. or it could be the real estate developers for whom they built the buildings, mm-hmm. they required finance, mm-hmm. and LNT thought that uh, you know by having a captive finance company, they could get garner more business for their main EPC mm-hmm. and construction business. That was the whole idea, and that's how LNT Finance was born. And eventually, LNT Finance uh, went into across all the products, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, vehicle finance, tractor finance, farm equipment. Uh, real estate loans, housing loans. So they became a complete multifaceted uh, finance company just on the lines of mm-hmm. Bajaj, Auto, Bajaj Finance as well. But the thing about LNT Finance is that post the ILFS crisis, there was a crunch time for them. Mm-hmm. Two, three things went wrong for them is that they had big ticket loans to a lot mm-hmm. of the developers and to infrastructure projects. And those sawed because of which they had to take massive hit on their balance sheet. At the same time, even on the retail side, the lending standards, I would say, were not as uh, sharp as some mm-hmm. of the other NBFCs, at least not compared to Bajaj Finance. Mm-hmm. And there also, their NPA started to spike up. Yeah, But eventually, I think the beauty of the NBFC space, Navarum, is that the N- net interest margins are so huge. And the actual net interest income, mm-hmm. net of all the, and the profits net of all the costs, are so robust yeah. that it can take care of all these NPA spikes which come from time to time. Right. So you could have volatility in the net profit because of these spikes in NPA, but the overall pre-provisioning profit that remains pretty much steady.
1: Yeah. But I mean, maybe let's give our viewers a little bit more context on you know the LNT finance figures uh, because. I guess in comparison to Bajaj Finance where they've grown at 16% compounded over the last five years, L&D Finance's overall advances have fallen by 25% over the last five years which is 4% compounded and their net interest margin is only at roughly 6% or so and their net NPAs are also much higher at roughly 2% and uh, I think that's because they've maybe moved away from project finance. Exactly, wholesale to retail. yeah. Yeah, that's right.
0: So, l Finance at one time had almost 50% wholesale mm-hmm. and they had this uh, target in mind where they wanted to get it to 80% by 2025, but I think they've got it to 80% in this uh, financial mm-hmm. year itself. So as a management, they have worked very hard and they have learned from their mistakes Mm-hmm. And now LNT Finance is a largely retail lender. Mm-hmm. And that does give a lot of safety to investors mm-hmm. uh, because typically, you know, retail lending, if you go, if it's ours, it doesn't spike up. Mm-hmm. It is not bulky in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, certain sectors, certain pockets, certain states, you may have a rise in NPA, but if it is pretty well diversified, it is generally manageable. And the culture in India, in terms of repayment at the family level, at the individual level,
1: is very good
0: yeah and it's culturally i think uh, you know we must say that we, typically an average indian doesn't think of defaulting yeah on his personal loan. yeah
1: i think indians are very very careful about taking debt at the household level exactly i think we've spoken a little bit earlier in this podcast about how you know the average indian debt level stands in comparison to the us and the uk and all but another really interesting facet of that is that over the last 20 years the household debt to gdp ratio has stayed flat and oh Whereas most places in the world, it's gone up a little bit. I think US, UK, they had a huge spike around 08 and then, you know, stapered off a little bit in countries like Malaysia, China. It's gone up substantially. India stayed very flat. So that's, to me, is a really interesting facet of, you know, why retail lending is such a great space to be because the mindset of the consumer is so very different.
0: That's right. And I think we must not forget the role of the RBI also they have uh, very strict procedures and very strict rules on NBFCs also in terms of uh, how much they can lend and what parameters they have to follow and what policies they must put in place to ensure that the average household or the average individual is not over leveraged. Mm -hmm. And with the formation of Mm Sibyl and the overall availability of financial information, Mm -hmm. I think uh, that has certainly enabled the NBFCs to have a more, uh, I would say, informed view of the finances of their borrowers and not to over uh, leverage mm-hmm. their own uh, borrowers because that can be detrimental to their own business model and to the country at large. I think you don't want a situation like what happened in 2008 in US. I think that was all about retail debt. Exactly. Uh, going over over-lever-
1: so. leveraging the retail population. Exactly. So, just to maybe bring it back it seems like the market has rewarded the LNT finance shift to retail lending absolutely uh, and it seems to have gone from being a wealth destroyer it compounded only 6.8% over the last 10 years the stock price only compounded it 6.8% over the last 10 years but in the last year it's up by almost 80% so it seems like having you know walked away from that wholesale lending business um, they've recovered to a relatively healthy pe of 17
0: absolutely i think and you know, one of the things that we need to highlight over here is that when it comes to NBFCs, another key success parameter is the ability to raise loans at a cheap rate. I mean, mm-hmm. They need to borrow money from somewhere to lend. And that's where I think the business house comes into play. Mm-hmm. I mean, when a bank or when a depositor is lending money to L&T Finance, he's got the backing of the L&T group. Right. So that immediately gives a lot of comfort that whatever you lend to L&T Finance, there's no way... That LNT is going to default. It hasn't done over the last several decades or so. The LNT group per se is financially extremely strong. So is the case with Bajaj as well. Uh, so there's very hardly any chance that anything you lend to LNT Finance uh, you'll become uh, non-recoverable. Right. And therefore, LNT Finance uses that name, that financial strength of its parent company to get loans at a cheaper and cheaper rate. Mm-hmm. So that's their competitive advantage against some of the other NBFCs. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, I think that amongst uh, a lot of the NBFCs, I would rate the prospects of l Finance exceptionally good. I think it's one company which has learned from its uh, experience. There's a change of guard also at the top which is taking place just now. And in India, I think, you know, considering the kind of network that LNT has and it touches so many lives and so many... Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I would say businesses across the board. There's a great scope to, uh, you know, get customers at the absolute grassroots level, and I think more or less their systems in terms of recovery, in terms of lending, their standards are more or less in place now. Mm-hmm. So I think that LNT finance can be a great compounding story, and I think that uh, the next time the NPA cycles go haywire, I don't think they would be impacted as much as we saw the last time.
1: Right. So. Positive outlook for uh, you know L N T Finance, which is another diversified finance player. Okay. But let's talk about the O G Indian NBFC space, which is housing finance, um, because I think we've talked about 08. and uh, one thing that's fundamentally true about household debt is the single biggest component of household debt is housing debt, because it lasts for a long time. It's the chunkiest component of you know all the debt that exists. It's entirely secured. And so it's an exclusively uh, exclusive space on its own. And while NBFCs have 10% of the overall uh, you know, lending pie, housing finance companies on their own have 10% of the overall lending pie. So it's a really interesting space to talk about.
0: Absolutely. But before we go to housing finance, I think we must highlight the fact that our preference has to be for diversified NBFCs. Okay. Because that in itself is, is a, I would say, provides comfort to the investor because if one segment is going slow or there are spike in NPN in one segment, the others may do well. Right. So the likes of Bajaj Finance and l Finance, they also do housing loans. Mm-hmm. They do automobile loans, they do gold loans, they do rural loans, MFIs. Across the board, they are in every segment. And within NBFC space, wherever they are lending to, there are these various, various sub-segments which at times do badly as well, which times do very well. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a diversified NBFC, then you can have a more, I would say, measured, a more average type of a growth. And from a risk perspective also, it is far better. Okay. When you come to housing, then the entire exposure is to the housing market <coughs> and the housing, comp- and the housing uh, market per se and the real estate industry. So if values over there start to go down or if the real estate industry is in a bad shape and there are no volumes taking place, new home sales mm-hmm. are slow, then automatically growing the credit book becomes very difficult for a housing finance company. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the problems can start because then every housing finance company has its target. They mm-hmm. want to grow at 10 15%, but there's not enough volume. So then what do they do? They start to lower the lending standards. Right. And that's where the problems start.
1: So when that it comes comes to that's a repeating story. I think housing, cre- housing credit bubbles fueled by. Uh, you know, trying to hit lending targets is a really common story across the globe. I think it's just happened in China where you have the likes of Evergrande Group that wanted to hit their targets and so they, you know, expanded their their housing lending book. (laughs) that's true in China. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in 08 it was the US, in the 90s it was Japan. So housing finance has this giant structural risk where there is the opportunity or rather the risk of structural cyclical fluctuations um, that completely wipe out, you know, a lot of wealth.
0: That's right, I think. Uh, and that's one thing to be very cautious about uh, within the housing finance company, uh, space that uh, you need to have an eye on the real estate values. I mean, so far in India, we have never had a really bad real estate cycle where housing prices have fallen mm-hmm. by 30 40 50%. There have been periods of stagnation, but never mm-hmm. actual ma- massive decline in housing mm-hmm. values. And therefore, the housing finance companies have been protected from that point of view. So, uh, in a way, uh, you know, these housing finance companies have not been stress tested for what we saw in in the other uh, other economies uh, globally. But my sense is that, by and large, in India, uh, again, cultural, when you are bordering against a house, the house is the most precious uh, property of life. And it's highly unlikely that you would want to default on it. I mean, it's a shame Mm-hmm. Uh, to be uh, you know, thrown out of your house—it's got a taboo attached to it. So from that point of view, I think the average uh, housing uh, loan borrower mm-hmm. is very responsible.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even to put it, uh, put the Indian housing market in the context of you know the the housing bubbles in China, Japan, the U.S. and you know globally, um, the household ownership in India is a, a fraction of where it is you know anywhere else in the world. And household debt also is half of any of these advanced economies and is half of the level it needs to be to identify that there even may be a bubble. Like, for example, China is at 68% of household debt to GDP. So the housing finance space would have to double uh, and then double again before we even got to the point where, you know, there's a question of demand softening.
0: That's right. But, you know, what you need to keep in mind that a lot depends upon the real estate industry. Till now, it was very unorganized. There was a large cash element in it. And it was a very difficult business to, you know, make new uh, apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were so many regulations also. But thanks to RERA, I think we are seeing a complete rejuvenation of India's real estate sector. And now it's all about modern housing societies. Right. And a lot of the, uh, you know, business has gone to organized players who in themselves are tied up with the housing finance companies. So the entire circle is complete that if you want to own a house, you have a fixed income, you're a salaried employee, or you have a steady business income, then it's very easy for you to get a housing loan at a very attractive rate and buy a house and move into there. And then they're like, so Bajaj Finance to give you loans for all the appliances. So I think it's a great uh, uh, roadmap for the average Indian family uh, which is becoming fast, more and more nuclear-oriented mm-hmm. uh, to have their own house, uh, which is, I think, a matter of pride. And right. It can be easily financed if you have a steady income.
1: Right. So I think for anyone that wants to know more about the real estate industry and you know the future of uh, housing, I think we've got a podcast out there that uh, that maybe our viewers can watch. That's right. But let's talk about our housing finance companies. Unfortunately, HDFC is no longer... Part of that club. But uh, there's a few really standout members. I think let's start with LIC Housing Finance and then we can go on to another, a couple of other players.
0: That's right. See, so but after HDFC, there are some other companies which come to mind which have done well on the housing finance space LIC Housing Finance, uh, Canfin Homes, PNB Housing, and there are a few others as well. Uh, but the key thing, though, know, what HDFC stood apart from all of the other housing finance companies is that they did not indulge in real estate loans to developers. The problem which happened with LIC housing finance a few years ago is that again they lent money to real estate developers and uh, this developer finance is what's hard for LIC housing per se and led to a spike in their NPAs, which they are just about recovering from just now. Canfin Homes uh, focused largely on retail loans, did very well, but they have had some problems in terms of uh, actual some issues with retail loans also. There have been some uh, minor scams and scandals around the lending uh, to the retail uh, borrower as well. And their CEO also left in a bit of a cloud. So, but coming back to LIC Housing Finance.
1: I mean, I have a couple of questions about Canfin, but maybe before we get to Canfin, let's give our viewers a sense of, you know, the LIC Housing Finance numbers. So, you understand the context within which, which, you know, these these companies operate. So, you know, two, two things really stick out to me. Over the last five years, their average uh, net interest margin is just around 2.5 percent, and over the last five years, their net NPAs are also around 2.5 percent. More in, I mean, the most pertinent example of what you pointed out of you know giving developer loans in 2018-19, their net NPAs were at 1 percent, and in 2022-23, their net NPAs were 3.7 percent. So it's gone up almost four times. So I think that's where, uh, you know, the market really undervalued them or really gave them a markdown and they're only traded at a 7p, which is very cheap, but with good reason.
0: That's right. Uh, 7p, but traded below its book value as well. And the precise reason is these loans which they are given to the developers. See, it's so easy to lend to a real estate developer. You can, uh, you know, easily grow your loan book by giving a chunky loan, 50, 100, 200 crores or so whereas making loans of 10 lakhs 15 lakhs 25 lakhs is far more difficult so that temptation is always there from a real estate finance financier that let's do just big ticket lending and meet our targets and the interest rates you can get over there also are pretty decent mm-hmm. because typically the real estate developer has very little access to finance as well so him tying up with the finance company works excellent for them for that point of view also but that's when the real estate project goes haywire there are delays it gets stuck and he's unable to pay the loan to the housing finance company, that's when the NPAs start to creep up. Right. And these are chunky NPAs, you know, you lend 100 crores and if it you don't get interest on it for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, you have to start providing for it. And yeah. even the kind of security is not that easily accessible mm-hmm. and convertible into actual recovery. Yeah. So there are many uh, such issues with housing finance companies, but I think by and large, uh, if you lend safely, to the retail sector, small ticket loans, loans against properties, it's a great business. Right. Because as you said, the level of ownership is low and that's only going to grow gradually as we go up. As a product, it's amongst the safest lending product within the entire NBFC space because of the large quantum of uh, security which is there, which being the man's um, house, which, which yeah. is unlikely going to default on.
1: So let's maybe walk away from LIC, which is you know really not necessarily manage their loan book, but particularly well, at least on the surface of it, the Canfin. Now, again, just to point out, Canfin seems to not have much of a problem with NPAs. Over the last five years, the net NPAs has only been f- 0.43%. Hmm. They've grown their advances also at a really steady rate of about 11.4%. Net interest margins are also relatively stable at 3.4%. Of course, it's not where you'd like for it to be, but it seems like they've grown in a responsible manner.
0: Absolutely. And you know, Varun, don't don't get too um, perturbed about low net interest margins for housing finance companies, because the cheapest housing loans are, the cheapest loans are the housing loans. And they're lent at about anywhere from 9% to 11, 12%. And the housing finance companies are borrowing at 7, 8% or so. So therefore, the net interest margin will always be in that 2 to 3% type of range. The beauty of Canfin Homes is that there's steadfast focus on the salaried borrower. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, 80-90% of their loans are to the salaried uh, class. And that's why I think there's a great deal of, uh, I would say, comfort. Very Mm -hmm. low chance of uh, any default over there. In India, you hardly have those large waves of, uh, you know, unemployment or people being thrown out of their Mm -hmm. jobs. By and large, once you have a job, steady income comes in, the salary is there. The housing finance companies cut the AMI straight from your bank account itself yeah. the day the salary comes. So you then start working with net of that amount. So, so long as you have a job and you have the salary coming in, you won't have a problem with recoverability. And Canfin Homes is largely in the southern a region. Mm-hmm. Where I think I think that the borrowers they are far more responsible <laughs> than the northern and the eastern region. God, that's uh, that's going to get cut up,
1: and we're going to get a lot of comments yeah. on that for sure.
0: And at the same time, it uh, leverages the Canara Bank network extensively. There are a lot of referrals, and they're able to raise resources at a very attractive level because of the parent company being Canara Bank. So again, they have that kind of a guarantee, yeah. unspoken guarantee yeah. that if you give deposits or loans to Canfeen Homes there's hardly any risk of it being a right. default.
1: A giant wealth creator as well. I think over the last 10 years, they've compounded at 40% year on year. So still a, you know, a giant wealth creator. But I have a specific question over here. Canfin is still only valued at a 15 P multiple. Um, they have a track record of growing well. They have a track record of quality NPAs. They have a, you know, backing of, you know, a Canara bank, which is, you know, allows them to access credit relatively cheaply. Why? Are, I mean, are they undervalued? Am I missing something? Why is they? I mean, because the average Nifty Fifty B is twenty, so they're under the Nifty Fifty average. Yeah, so I right. see the reason for that. Now, is that let's just
0: uh, go a, a bit deeper and granular into housing finance companies, and where the problems are for companies like Canfin Homes and mm-hmm. LIC. So Canfin Homes, LIC Housing, PNB Housing, HDFC, they had an early mover advantage. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they were easily lending to the salaried class. Mm-hmm. But now banks also have upped their tempo when it comes to housing loans. Mm-hmm. And they're also focusing on the same salaried class of borrowers. So there is intense competition in the core borrower group of these companies. Mm-hmm. So the street feels that companies like Canfin Homes, LIC Housing, PNB will have it very difficult to grow their loan book at the rate that they have been doing in the past. In the past, they could grow at 15-17% very easily. Now, I think to grow at even a uh, high single digit will become difficult because of the competitive intensity which is there in housing loans per se, especially from the banks. And banks will always have an advantage over NBFC because their cost of funds is lower. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, the growth rates uh, may be subdued going forward or so. Now, that's the reason why Canfinoms, LIC housing are trading at these low price to earnings multiple because I think the best part of the growth is behind them and it's unlikely that, you know, they can grow at the same growth rates. But there's a new generation of housing finance companies also and we'll talk about them. And they are focusing more and more on semi-urban, rural lending and they're going towards the non-salaried class where it is very difficult to judge their repayment capacity and that's where their edge is and we'll come to that as well. So within the housing finance, they have the old housing finance companies, which have got steady stream mm-hmm. of borrowers, safe ones, but everybody's looking at them. And then there are the new generation uh, in uh, housing finance companies where they are doing something innovative, right? something different.
1: So let's talk about this new generation of housing finance companies. Avas and New Housing Finance Company, as as you described, yeah. are uh, seemingly the two new generation housing finance companies. Both are relatively expensive at a PE of about thirty, but they also show strong growth prospects. Yes. Uh, so, what are they doing differently?
0: So, Avas and Home for Home First, I think, are the two companies which we are covering just now. And if I may just you know go back a little bit uh, to a very interesting story uh, that HDFC had a company, subsidiary company, called. Gujarat Rural Housing Limited, uh, GRHL. It was an outstanding performer, great wealth creator. And Gujarat uh, Rural Housing's main business model was, as the name says, to lend to the rural areas in Gujarat. They would lend for people to build small huts, small houses, and uh, they would lend to uh, borrowers who hardly had any I would say financial records, they were non-salaried employees, they were small businessmen, even artisans, and the ticket size was very small mm-hmm. and they grew that business phenomenally well till HDFC sold it to Bandhan Bank mm-hmm. and it got merged into Bandhan Bank per se. So when I look at awas Finances and look at Home First and there are a few others over there as well, I think their business model is very much similar to this uh, Gujarat Rural Housing Finance Limited where they are going deeper and deeper into tier two, tier three, tier four as well. They're focused over there Mm -hmm. Uh, because their borrowers do not, are not basically Mm non-salaried. They are in the unorganized sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, Getting hold of their financial data is very difficult, Mm -hmm. but they have uh, set a system. They're looking at many other parameters and they've done something different when it comes to identifying what the right amount of loan should be given. Mm -hmm. and then how to recover it. Mm -hmm. They have got those deep relationships with those customers. They have got feet on the ground and they're ensuring that, uh, you know, they're able to lend responsibility and collect it as well. And that's where there's a huge scope because those are the people who cannot easily access bank loans, those are the kind of borrowers who cannot get money from an HDFC or a Canfin or a PNB because it just won't fall in their parameters. But that's where the likes of Avas, uh, Home First, and some of the other aptus housing, these companies come into play, where they have devised very strong uh, systems of identifying the right borrower, assessing his borrowing capacity, and being able to recover it.
1: Yeah. So I mean, these their numbers really bear this out as well. Absolutely. I think yeah. Avas and uh, sorry it was Home First Home First Finance. Both of them are growing at about 19% compounded over the last five years, which is well above LIC, which I mean we you know we don't really want to discuss, but even above Canfin, which is only growing at about eleven percent, so they're growing faster, and presumably that's why they're commanding a higher PE of roughly thirty for both of them.
0: That's right, and uh, the market is still huge for them. They're just about barely scratched the surface in a few states. Mm-hmm. They have a long way to go in terms of going deeper and deeper into the country. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, I think they have a great great future ahead yeah. of them. Uh, But one caveat over here that I don't think that they have seen a down cycle. right? And that's the time when they get tested. Mm -hmm. The reason why we are so positive, why the market, not just me, is so positive on a Bajaj Finance and we'll come to Chola Mandalam also Mm -hmm. when we do that, is because these are the two companies along with HDFC which have stood the test of time. Right. There was a, when there was crunch time, Mm -hmm. how did these companies, uh, you know, actually deliver? Right. Were they able to collect? Were they able to grow? It was like, you know, you were passed through a stress test and you came through with flying colors and investors are going to reward you for that. And But that's not the case for these new generation housing loan companies. So let's see how they work yeah. out.
1: But I mean, at the surface of it, their numbers still look decent. Absolutely. And let's yeah. give our viewers a sense of that. I think Avas has a healthy net interest margin of roughly 9% and their net NPAs are also relatively soft at 0.57%. Um, I think the other one Home First Home First I keep forgetting their name for Mm. some reason Home First is a slightly worse set of figures but still relatively healthy net interest margin of 5.4% and net NPAs of about 1.2 1.3% thereabouts so you're right I mean they haven't been tested Uh, they've only been listed a year ago so they have a long way to go Um, but at the surface of it their figures look healthy that's right
0: and don't miss the fact that the net interest margins that being what Rate mm-hmm. of interest they lend and what interest they borrow is nearly double the traditional housing right. finance company yeah. because they are really lending to the uh, the unbanked, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the the average Indian who has doesn't have access to uh, le- to loans mm-hmm. and therefore they're able to charge a higher interest rate. I
1: mean that's I mean there's so much scope for that because if I just look at the broad macro figures, there's about 60, 70 million people that file tax. Um, and only 20 2030 million or so that pay tax and so realistically if you think about the salaried class that's earning money filing tax there's really only 20 30 million people and that's growing at you know 10 eleven percent or so um, but the non salaried class the small businessmen the the freelancers the entrepreneurs the you know the chaivas the sandwich the the yeah they that don't have a formal you know banking history or at least didn't have a formal banking history until upi came to the fore um all of them are not really accessing credit i think the credit penetration in india is only four percent so these guys avas and home first have a huge scope to grow absolutely
0: and they are again lending against a very solid asset i suspect that uh you know a lot of it some amount of it Uh, maybe undervalued when it comes to uh, Mm -hmm. the loan that they are giving against that asset. So from that point of view, I think it's a very safe lending and enormous scope because of the geographical coverage, which they can still uh, look at expanding into.
1: Yeah. So let's maybe move on from, I think we've had, you know, two different types of housing finance companies. I want to take a moment and maybe go in a completely different direction with Tiramal. Because uh, there's been a lot of corporate actions over the last several years in that company, yeah. um, makes it very difficult to understand, very difficult to value. So, what exactly is happening with Peramal? What have they done? Where are they going? What's going on there?
0: Okay. So, Peramal Enterprises was uh, in the last decade in two thousand ten or so they were uh, India's one of India's largest pharmaceutical company, and they felt that uh, you know uh, it was a good. Uh, opportunity for them to exit the pharma business at premium valuation Mm -hmm. so they sold the entire pharma business at 3.7 billion in 2010 to abbott Mm -hmm. and with that kind of money coming into uh, the company they thought that they should look at growth avenues and according to them i think financing business was a great growth avenue so once they sold the
1: company for 3.7 billion did they have any business lines in place or was it just a pure pot of capital no,
0: they had uh, India generic India India generic business, India consumer business. They had contract uh, contract manufacturing as well. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the branded business, the branded generic business in India, mm-hmm. that was sold to Abbott, mm-hmm. and that was a huge chunk of the company's uh, profits and revenues. Right. So you suddenly had a lot of cash. Some of it they distributed back to their shareholders in form mm-hmm. of dividends, buybacks. But by and large, it was a very cash-rich company and. Uh, To start a finance company, you require the initial capital. And that's where they thought that, you know, they could have a slightly differentiated business model and get into the lending business. Now, the irony is that uh, when it started getting into the lending business, we all thought it was a great uh, strategy from their point of view.
1: Sorry, just a quick question. So just to establish the timeline of this Pyramal story, when did they sell this business to Abbott for... 2010. 2010, okay.
0: And 13 years down the line... Okay, I had this figure, I checked it out, 13 years down the line, Abbott has a market capitalization of 51,000 crores and the combined entities of Piramal, Piramal Enterprise and Piramal Pharma have a market capitalization of 37,766 crores. So I really question the wisdom of exiting a thriving, interesting, high growth
1: business like Pharma. It's a future-proof business, right? Exactly. I mean. We look, We I mean, maybe it's a benefit of hindsight, but the pharmaceutical business is a great business to be in because Absolutely. not only from an Indian perspective where healthcare demands will continue rising, but globally also the population ages, healthcare demands will continue rising. In 2010, you would rate Peramal with
0: uh, Dr. Eddy, Cipla, Lupin, around that level mm-hmm. in terms of market capitalization. Now that entire group is worth 38,000 crores the likes of Cipla, Dr. Eddy, Lupin, Sun Pharma have gone miles ahead. So, I'm not sure whether the great decision to sell the pharma business Mm -hmm. at that point of time. Uh, I mean, we all are wiser in hindsight. But uh, nonetheless, I think things didn't work out well for Paramel Enterprises as well because uh, their focus on lending was to the real estate developers. Oh boy. And that's where things went really horrible. Uh, Again, very easy to grow the loan book. You're Mm -hmm. sitting on cash, you can borrow at very fine interest rates. You need a huge class of uh, borrowers yeah, yeah. and at that point of time, the real estate industry was doing pretty well in 2010, early or, least, or there about 2015, 12, 13, 14. Uh, so they found ready borrowers and they lent money to the real estate developers. And one by one by one, as those real estate developers started to fail, Pyramidal Enterprises had huge NPAs and a lot of, I would say, uh, um, sentiment got sad in the company because of their lending strategy. right? It turned out to be not a great strategy. Mm-hmm. They also realized it that they needed to grow the retail book. So they went and bought Divan Housing Finance, which was again a beleaguered housing finance company. We are not talking about it. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, it's one of the SAR chapters in the MBFC space. So they bought the retail book of Divan Housing. And now they want to grow the retail housing finance uh, loan book. But they were late in the game.
1: The likes of Bajaj, L&T, Canfim, yeah, New yeah, Generation, yeah. they have
0: gone miles ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, one thing that strikes me is that if you want to be a quality player in the retail lending game, it's all about origination and distribution.
0: Absolutely, you got to try it. But on this. Origination, distribution...
1: And, and recovery. Collection. Yeah. <laughs> as as I, I always start with origination, distribution, you always finish with recovery. Yes. And that takes decades to build up. That takes exactly. absolutely. It's a Network,
0: getting the right resources in place, technology platform. The right talent. Talent, yeah. yeah. So there are many, many aspects. And I think piramal Enterprises lost four or five good years in trying to focus on wholesale lending mm-hmm. when, when they should have done retail lending. It right. a different place zone altogether. Right. Of course, they're making cost correction just now. Let's see how it plays out. But the street has hammered the stock down. It is available at very attractive valuations. But yet it is not finding part of many portfolios. Because it's a business, it's a company which is in transition. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know how successful they will be on the retail lending side, housing loan side. And as I told you earlier, there is intense competition over there as well. So from that point of view, the going is going to get tough for mm-hmm. Perambal Enterprises. Now they want to go into consumer loans and take on Bajaj Finance. They want to go into other gold loans and many other products. But you know, it's a it's a tough task. You know, you don't have an early mover advantage. And there's a great deal of competitive intensity also has increased. So I would say that it is a... Uh, best. There are better choices. Yeah, it seems being... like a
1: complete lack of strategic clarity. I mean, you are exactly. a pharma company, then you will be a wholesale lending exactly. company, then you are retail housing finance, then you are consumer consumer lending. It's it's. There's a lot of things going on, and none of it's going well.
0: Exactly, um, but never ever write off Mr. Ajay Peramal. He's another shrewdest industrialist in India, and uh, I would say that uh, sooner or later he may pull a rabbit out of the hat and take this company to the next level. They tried to acquire Shiram Finance as mm-hmm. well, directly, indirectly. That also did not work out. So, you know, he's a busy buddy. You know, he'll do something to make sure that piramal Enterprises is back to its uh, pinnacle. Uh, but for the time being, I think I'm not seeing any uh, lucid strategy, uh, which can make me attracted to piramal Enterprises. There are so many great choices within the finance companies.
1: What I gather from the whole Pyramal story in particular is that there's a huge breadth of options available. As an NBFC, I mean, you can specialize in a specific asset, you can specialize in a specific area, you can specialize over a specific set of customers, um, but getting it right is difficult. And um, I think we've so far covered off some of the biggies in the space that have got it right and some that have got it wrong, particularly with housing finance and, you know, diversified NBFCs. And um, hopefully next time for our next podcast, we can provide our viewers with something different by talking about hyper-specialized NBFCs in the auto, gold, and microfinance space.
0: Yes, absolutely, Varun. It's a vibrant industry, as we can see. And there are many sub-segments, and uh, there are some interesting stories in the auto uh, segment, auto lending, as Mm -hmm. well as gold loans and microfinance. And microfinance is really the upcoming sector.
1: Yeah. And I was just looking at the figures for the next week's podcast, and you know... um, some of their net interest margins as well as their collection efficiency is much better than even some of the housing finance companies we've discussed. So a really, really interesting set of companies to discuss. And um, hopefully our viewers tune in next week as well for, uh, for more on the NBFC sector.
0: Absolutely enjoying this podcast.
1: This podcast is produced by Links Equities Private Limited, a semi-registered research analyst. Registration number INA 4787 The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Investment in the securities market are subject to market risk. We strongly advise all investors to read all related documents carefully before investing.